0: Since human beings first crane their necks skyward, the celestial bodies above have captured their hearts and minds. There is perhaps no point in the sky for which this is more true than the Pleiades star cluster. Located in the Taurus constellation and visible from the North Pole to the South Pole, the Pleiades have held a place of prominence in nearly all cultures on Earth, from the ancient Egyptians, Romans, and Greeks to the indigenous tribes of North and South America to Asia and Scandinavia and beyond, all the way to our own modern astronomers and scientists. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the Pleiades have influenced the path of human history for thousands of years. Yet, even this might be an understatement. Perhaps this infamous star cluster has influenced us more than we know, fundamentally shaping who we are and what we do, where we have been and where we are going. Even our very DNA, Perhaps this continues to this day. On November 26, 1977, during an otherwise uneventful local news broadcast from the south of England, something took place which alarmed and disturbed those watching at home. Without warning, the ambling broadcast was interrupted by a message purported to be, quite literally, out of this world. Here's how it happened in real time.
1: Internal, Internal settlement based, of based of on one hand or vote. As he says, there no are conditions. These include stopping the execution of all captured prisoners of <laughs> war.
0: Existence under this but I do so,
1: you be to have and cross, and for Sisters with your
0: and
1: to you me? to The of the is a you the we have evidence of The of a gift
0: lost. This you are not to proceed to the highest of the evolution if you show yourself willing you to do this.
1: Now, after the time, to, to learn to get together and so be the sword of the act of madness and exist mr- so dor- oh, another-
0: so- oh. to all supply to the home
1: and stay Your angels have a perfect identity from this to so that lost
0: and And now,
1: I surrender to oh. your identity I am speaking to you. You are also the
0: God the all the and the of the, the suffering
1: of the money, the you,
0: and everything is alive, and you are to be in fairness, and you will lose this you all
1: this, and
0: the vision calls. The vision calls. The vision calls. We are prisoners.
1: We can see I <laughs> you <laughs> <That's not normal. laughs> <laughs>
0: We understand that the viewers in some parts of the region are receiving a breakthrough in sound. We're sorry about this, and we're doing our best
1: to rectify the thought.
0: In the aftermath of this broadcast, experts scrambled to find an explanation. How had the broadcast been hacked and by who? Could it have been some sort of elaborate prank? Or could it really have been a message from a mysterious galactic command sent to warn of the disaster which threatens your world? And if so, what exactly did this galactic command mean by we will do all we can to help you? The evening of March 16, 1967 was not unlike many others in Montana at that time of year. At the remote Maelstrom Air Force Base in central Montana, home to a large cache of the United States military's nuclear missiles, a clear night meant on-duty airmen could bask in the full splendor of what is known as Big Sky Country. One such airman was doing just that, gazing lazily to the sky as the hours on duty passed, when suddenly he noticed a most curious sight. There, in the sky above him, was a small light zigzagging back and forth unnaturally. Then, moments later, another light, only larger and closer. As protocol dictated, the airman called down to the control station buried some 60 feet underground, where the phone was answered by Lieutenant Robert Salas. The airman explained the lights he was seeing, but Lieutenant Salas was unmoved, believing the lights to be nothing. He brushed the airman off, instructing him to call back if the lights got any closer as he hung up. Moments later, the phone rang again. Only this time when Salas answered, the airman was panicked and shouting. There's one hovering outside the front gate, the airman gasped. One what? Salas demanded. A UFO! I can't really describe it. It's glowing red, the airman shrieked. Now, fully concerned, Salas rushed to wake his commander Lieutenant Fred Meinwald. As he briefed the commander on the situation at hand, an alarm suddenly began to blare, filling the rooms of the underground station. Simultaneously, lights started popping up on the control station, indicating that the nuclear missiles housed there were switching into a no-go condition. One after another, the missiles became unlaunchable. Immediately, a security team was dispatched to find out what was going on. They reached the surface just in time to see a glowing red, oval-shaped object speed off into the night sky and disappear from sight. The missiles would remain in a no-go condition for an entire day, despite showing no signs of physical damage or foul play when examined. This left the Air Force dumbfounded, unable to provide an explanation for what had happened. But Robert Salas had an explanation one that remained in his mind for many years afterwards. I think it was simply a show, Salas said during an interview with CNN in 2010. They wanted to shine a light on our nuclear weapons and just send us a message. What message? My interpretation is the message is get rid of them because it's going to mean our destruction. What is perhaps most interesting about this story is that it is not all that unique. Only a few years prior, in 1964, another Air Force lieutenant named Robert Jacobs reported seeing a strange UFO firing beams of light at a nuclear missile undergoing testing near Big Sur, California. We were testing it to see if we could launch a nuclear warhead into orbit, Jacobs explained during his 2021 testimony at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. As the missile being tested shot into the stratosphere, a disc-shaped craft appeared in pursuit, traveling at over 8,000 miles per hour. Suddenly, the craft fired four beams of light at the missile, at which point, in the words of Jacobs, the warhead tumbled out of space. These types of stories are not conspiracy. In the 1970s, none other than the Washington Post, citing documents from the U.S. Department of Defense, reported that a string of the nation's super-sensitive nuclear missile launch sites and bomber bases were visited by unidentified low-flying and elusive objects. But it goes back even further. In the 1940s, when the U.S. was first developing the atomic bomb, UFOs were reported over Hanford site in Washington state the place where the plutonium was being produced for the Manhattan Project. According to the Department of Energy documents, a glowing fireball was seen in the sky on more than one occasion. When it was pursued by the Air Force jets, it simply sped away too fast to be pursued. 1,200 miles away, in Los Alamos, New Mexico, where the first atomic bombs were being tested, Additional Department of Energy documents record multiple sightings of a green ball of fire in the sky. Even Roswell, New Mexico, site of perhaps the most infamous UFO incident in history, has its own connection with nuclear weapons. At the time of the incident, Roswell was home to the U.S. Air Force's 509th Bombardment Group, the squadron that dropped nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. Again and again, there appears to be a connection between UFOs and America's nuclear capabilities. This connection has become the life's work of investigative journalist George Knapp, who for over 30 years has used the Freedom of Information Act to examine documents from the U.S. Departments of Defense and Energy, recording incidents which appear decade after decade to this very day. At the facilities where we were first designing and building nuclear weapons, at the places where we were processing the fuel, at the facilities where we were testing the weapons, at the bases where we deployed those weapons, on the ships, the nuclear submarines, all those places, the people working there have seen these things. In fact, the relationship between UFOs and America's nuclear capabilities is something recognized at the highest levels of the US government. Consider Harry Reid, the recently retired former Senate Majority Leader from Nevada, who for 30 years was one of the most powerful people in the United States. During a 2019 interview, Reid stated, The occurrences of people seeing unidentified flying objects is not a dozen people here, a dozen people there. Thousands of people have seen these, and on occasion many hundreds of people saw the same thing at the same time. We have occurrences that are not disputed at some of our missile bases, where the whole base was shut down. Apparently, if they had been asked to fire a missile, they couldn't. No one knows how they did that. We have ships that the communications went dead with these things in the water. So, this is not something that just a few crackpots are trying to make a big deal out of. This is something that we as a country should be involved in. In 2007, while serving as the leader of the U.S. Senate, Reid pushed for tens of millions of dollars of funding for what became known as the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which worked within the Department of Defense investigating unexplained aerial phenomenon, or UAP. The director of this program from its inception until 2017 was a man named Luis Elizondo. In 2021, Elizondo spoke on what his investigation had discovered at an event attended by virtually the entirety of mainstream American media, and many global sources as well. There seems to be a very distinct congruency between UAP, associated UAP activity, and our nuclear technology, whether it be propulsion or weapon systems or whatnot. And that's concerning to the point where we've actually had some of our nuclear capabilities disabled by these things. When pressed by a reporter to clarify that he was saying America's nuclear capabilities had been disabled by something which could not be explained, Elizondo responded, There is absolutely evidence that comports to the notion that UAPs have an active interest in our nuclear technology and have in the past interfered with some of our nuclear capabilities. That's fact, yes. Crucially, Elizondo added another nugget to his address. Furthermore, those same observations have been seen overseas in other countries. They too have had the same incidents. So that tells us this is a global issue. If it is established at the highest levels of American power that UFOs have taken an active interest in the country's nuclear capabilities, could the same be true in other countries? Is it really a global issue? During the Cold War, the US Air Force and British Royal Air Force jointly operated multiple bases in the UK, which housed nuclear weapons pointed directly at the Soviet Union. In late December of 1980, mystifying incidents took place at two of these bases on the same night, the latter of which has become known as Britain's Roswell. First, an air traffic controller at the RAF Bentwaters base in Suffolk named Ivan Barker reported something unbelievable in the sky. We looked up on the radar scope and saw something not like anything I'd seen before, Barker explained. It had to be moving Mach 5, 6, 7, or 8, faster than anything other than possibly a missile. As Barker looked up from the radar to view it directly from his observation tower, the craft moved closer. It was, in Barker's words, like a helicopter hovering, except with a helicopter you get movement up and down. This was stationary. It was between about 1,500 and 2,000 feet high. The thing was at least a city block in diameter. It was shaped like a giant basketball with portholes around the center and lights emanating outward. I was shocked, Barker professed. There was nothing aerodynamic about it. Basketballs don't fly. At the same time, only a few miles away, at the RAF Woodbridge base, A security team led by Colonel Charles Holt reported seeing a small triangular shaped craft in nearby Rendlesham Forest. The craft was, as Holt later described, approximately three meters on a side, dark metallic in appearance with strange markings. It would appear to be winking and was shedding molten metal and silently moving through the trees, and at one point it actually approached us. Then it very quickly and silently vanished at high speed. What could this craft have been?" Holt was asked. I have no idea what we saw that night, but I do know it was under intelligent control. My theory is that it was from another dimension or extraterrestrial. Much as with the Maelstrom incident in Montana, as the UFOs were spotted at Bentwaters and Woodbridge, the nuclear weapons at each base suddenly, inexplicably, became inoperable. Those nukes they had pointed at the Soviet Union well, they were a no-go. Most simply, these incidents show that the connection between UFOs and nuclear capabilities is a global issue, as Luis Elizondo suggested. But in fact, it goes much deeper than that. Back in 1954, UFO culture did not exist on the global scale it does today. If someone were to report an alleged alien encounter, they would not have the stories of others to draw upon when creating their own. This is what makes a local broadcast scene that year in Staffordshire, England, so compelling.
1: Staffordshire's had a whole crop of flying saucers spots in the sky, lights in the sky, strange things. But the strangest of all was seen one day over this cottage. Mr. and Mrs. Rustenberg were living there, quietly, out in the country. And, well, what, you just tell me what you saw. Well, it was one ordinary day. I was waiting for my husband to come home from work, and my two sons went to cipher to school, and I was getting changed, and I heard this terrific noise. It was just like a giant cauldron of water being poured onto a a fire-ish sort of noise, you know. And my first reaction was, oh, the children. I thought maybe a plane was crashing or something like that. And I uh, slipped my jumper on and went outside to find my two sons lying flat on the ground in the garden in front of the house, shouting, Mummy, mummy, there's a flying saucer. Well, naturally, I just said, come on, don't be stupid. Come in the house. But felt sort of a strange sensation. Uh, when did my way up the side of the house to where we had a pump where we used to get all our water from and um, automatically looked up to see this, all I can describe, this huge Mexican hat. It was stationary, this thing, and it was bright silver in color, and it had a dome. A dome, it was tilted to sort of, I could see the occupants in it. You saw people in it? I saw people in it. There were two people in there. Um, these people were beautiful people. That's the only way I can describe them. Um, they had long golden hair, like a page boy, page boy bob, just like the old kings. You used to see photographs of the old kings. And the, the colour of the hair was golden. Now, I was really... I no, were they dressed? They had a sort of a pole neck jumper affair, like a ski top suit mm. in, in pale blue. Now, these people weren't sat behind, one behind the other, they were sat together, but this whatever it was, was tilted so that I could see them and they could see me. Were you looking at them through windows, through portholes? Uh, or... No, not portholes, it was just sort of the... like a cockpit, I suppose that had this perspect or glass or whatever it was, they could see me anyway and I could see them. And um, they were, uh, they had beautiful faces. I shall never forget their faces as long as I live. Their foreheads seemed to be a, a bit larger than, you know, the the bottom of their faces as as normal people you would expect to see. But um, maybe this is, was just the whatever they had around their heads, which was like a trans parent fishbowl and they just looked and I was absolutely paralytic with fear. I couldn't move, although my mind was ticking over and they looked so sympathetic that I was just mesmerized for what seemed to be all ages, but it could have only been seconds and I turned to sort of look down at the boys was, was unaware that they were with me because I was so absorbed. And the next thing I looked up and it was gone. How low had it been? It had been the, the height, I couldn't tell you. But the house that you've seen, it was just on top of the roof. It was hovering on top of the, the roof. How big was it compared with the size Compar- of the house? It, it, it swallowed the the whole circumference of, of the roof. I couldn't see, the roof was completely blotted out. The chimneys I couldn't see. All I could see was this massive, uh object that i described as a a, like a mexican's hat a mexican hat without the bubbles and then it flew away sideways or upwards no I, i didn't see i just looked up and it had gone but i assume it went straight up because for a short while after in the sky i looked around and i said to my two boys well, can you see anything? Can you see anything? And they said, there it is, Mum. And they pointed up, and I watched it. It was just like a little cotton meal in the sky. And it circled us three times. It went round three times. And then it just shut off. And that was it. When I started to analyse my myself afterwards, I feared that I might have had an hallucination. But then I knew I, I hadn't had, because my sons were so sure about what they'd seen and what I'd seen. And I went, it went through my mind that it was a secret uh, weapon from Russia. And then I thought, oh, well, it can't be that, because if they had something like that, they wouldn't need to fear anybody or anything. Were but, you scared by it? Did you run indoors? Oh, I was petrified. I couldn't move. I couldn't move a muscle. I was paralyzed with fear. But um, now I wouldn't be. Because now, when I look back, you know, I think... What, what, what an amazing thing to have happened, and for me to have seen it. And when your husband came home, where were you? Well, when my husband came home from the office, I was locked in the house with my children, under the kitchen table that we were using. Under the table? Under the table, yes. It's funny now, when I look back, you know, it sounds absolutely ridiculous, but this is the truth. This happened, and that's it. We were ridiculed. It was very embarrassing at the time, and people, they, they possibly thought, oh, she's a nutter, but you know, who cares? It, this is something that's happened to me, and I'm a practically-minded person, and
0: that's it. While the story is exceptional, note that while Mrs. Rustenberg tells it, she is not dramatic, not obviously putting on a performance for the benefit of the camera, but rather measured and resolute, her body language that of someone who has nothing to hide and nothing to gain from lying. But what makes Mrs. Rustenberg's story so particularly relevant here is not her apparent sincerity but rather where her story took place. Only a few years before her alleged encounter, Mrs. Rustenberg's hometown of Staffordshire, England was the location of the largest military accident ever recorded. November 27, 1944. Forever known to residents of Staffordshire as the day the world blew up. On that day, over 4,000 tons of bombs, shells, and rifle ammunition stored in an underground RAF facility were accidentally ignited. The result was the largest non-nuclear explosion in human history. Under a mushroom cloud thousands of feet high, the surrounding countryside was obliterated, farms wiped out, and a reservoir destroyed. Fields were littered with the carcasses of mutilated livestock and fish, while many people died. Left behind at the site of the explosion was a smoldering crater some 100 feet deep and 400 yards across, known today as the Hanbury Crater. Making things worse, Though the explosion had been immense, it had not impacted the entire underground stash of weapons. Not all the bombs had exploded. It was too dangerous to attempt to recover the undetonated explosives, the ground too unstable, and the threat of another explosion too high, forcing the government to leave the volatile cache underground. Does this give Mrs. Rustenberg's story of her alien encounter more credibility? Think about it. The connection between UFOs and dangerous weapons has already been established at the highest levels of American power. Perhaps the UFO Mrs. Ristenberg saw was just there to check on the ticking time bomb beneath her feet. Perhaps the UFO was looking out for us. This idea can be expanded beyond the borders of the English-speaking West and beyond simply dangerous weapons. April 26, 1986 will forever be remembered as a dark day in human history. On that day, the number 4 reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the north of the Ukraine melted down, spewing radioactive contamination across the Soviet Union and Europe in the worst nuclear disaster in human history. Hundreds of thousands were evacuated and millions more affected by the Chernobyl disaster and yet, according to some, it could have been much worse. On the night of the disaster, as the reactor was melting down, employees at the plant reported seeing something incredible hovering in the sky over Reactor 4. In the words of one such employee, senior dosimetrician Mikhail Varitsky, We saw a ball of fire, and it was slowly flying in the sky. I think the ball was six or eight meters in diameter. Then we saw two rays of crimson light stretching towards the fourth unit. The object was some 300 meters from the reactor. The event lasted for about three minutes. The lights of the object went out and it flew away in the northwestern direction. Think back to the rays of a UFO causing a nuclear missile to tumble out of space outside Big Sur, California in 1964. What were the results of these rays of crimson light? shining on Reactor 4 at Chernobyl. In 2002, the Russian news outlet Pravda provided an answer in an investigation on the incident. The UFO brought the radiation level down, they reported. The level was decreased almost four times. This probably prevented a nuclear blast. So, maybe it is not weapons specifically which are connected with UFOs, but rather, humanity's tendency to come close to destroying itself. On March 11, 2011, the devastating Tohoku earthquake and tsunami hit off the east coast of Japan. It was the most powerful earthquake ever recorded in Japan, and in the nearby city of Fukushima, the results were dire. The quake caused not one but three meltdowns at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, spewing radioactive contamination into the atmosphere and flooding radioactive isotopes into the Pacific Ocean. It was the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. Yet much like Chernobyl, at the time the plant was melting down, unusual activity was spotted in the skies above it, strange white orbs moving unnaturally in the sky. What were these orbs up to and is it possible, as is alleged in the case of Chernobyl, that they were somehow mitigating the disaster? Could the Fukushima nuclear meltdown have been worse if not for these UFOs? Some say an answer was provided in 2016, when the 6.9 magnitude Fukushima earthquake struck just southeast of the city, Though the Fukushima nuclear plant's operations had been shut down after 2011, it still contained nuclear reactors which would take decades to decommission, reactors which, once more, would threaten meltdown in the face of disaster. As the quake hit, those still working inside the plant watched with terror, as part of the cooling system required to prevent such a meltdown inexplicably shut down. At just that moment, a UFO appeared in the skies above the plant. Incredibly, despite the shutdown of part of the cooling system, almost no temperature increase was recorded in the reactors. There was no meltdown and no nuclear disaster. Could the UFOs seen in the skies as the quake hit have somehow prevented disaster? In light of the alleged instances at Fukushima and Chernobyl, and the well-documented connection between UFOs and nuclear weapons, perhaps an intercepted broadcast from a purported galactic command warning about a disaster which threatens your world is not as far-fetched as it may have seemed. Perhaps Robert Salas was not wrong when he surmised aliens were trying to send us a message about our destruction. Then again, maybe it goes beyond simply an intercepted broadcast, beyond abstract warnings maybe it is more of a partnership. Chaim Eshed is something of a legend in his own time. For 30 years he served as the head of Israel's space program, three times earning the Israel Defense Prize, the highest civilian defense honor in the state of Israel, while personally overseeing the launch of 20 Israeli satellites. He is, appropriately known as, the father of Israel's space program, This is why it was so stunning when in 2020, after retiring from his post, Eshed gave an interview to Yeriet Aharonat, the largest newspaper in Israel, in which he spoke of things previously unheard of from someone in his position. Aliens have not only already visited Earth, Eshed dramatically claimed, but have contacted and forged relationships with world governments. These aliens, according to Eshed, represent an intergalactic space federation, which has been watching over humanity, tracking all nuclear activity and preventing nuclear wars. Not all the governments of the world know, he explained. There's a group of partners, Americans, Russian, Japanese, British, Chinese, who are coordinating not to reveal this, and they asked not to publish it. Perhaps Haim Eshed is lying. Perhaps he would throw away an award-winning career on a ruse or maybe he is merely the first in such a position of power to tell the truth. Could an intergalactic space federation really be watching over humanity without most of us even knowing it's happening? Or maybe we know more than we realize. It was July of 1992 when Peter Curry awoke to a distressing situation. He was paralyzed, unable to move but fully conscious. More alarmingly, he realized a strange woman was sitting on top of him, straddling his body. She had unusual features – blonde hair and milky white skin, with large blue eyes and protruding cheekbones. On the corner of the bed sat another woman – an Asian-looking female, according to Curry. Slowly and without speaking, the woman on Curry's chest turned to the other woman, touched her stomach, then pointed to the sky. As she did, the two strange women disappeared. Afterwards, Curry searched the room for evidence of their having been there, and actually found it. Unlike in so many other instances, this time there seemed to be physical evidence left behind. A single hair. Feeling he had proof of an alien encounter, Curry brought the hair to an independent biochemistry lab for analysis, and the results were unbelievable. The hair was optically clear, like nylon fishing line. According to biomolecular chemist Horace Drew, there's nobody on Earth who has hair that is optically clear. Moreover, whereas human hair has one DNA type, this hair had two a blue-eyed, light-skinned, Celtic lineage at the root and a rare Chinese lineage in the shaft. How were these things possible? To the lab scientists, it seemed as though the hair might really be alien. Note that the alleged aliens Peter Curry encountered did not have the appearance of the aliens we know in popular culture, those small gray beings with bulbous heads and large black eyes. No, Curry's aliens appeared more human—blonde hair, blue eyes, the milky white skin. She looked almost Scandinavian. Recall Mrs. Rustenberg from Staffordshire and how she described the aliens she saw. These people were beautiful people, that's the only way I can describe them. They had long golden hair, like a page boy bob. Did she and Peter Curry come into contact with the same type of aliens? And if so, who are they? Some 500 light-years from Earth, nestled within the Taurus constellation, lies the Pleiades star cluster. Made up of hundreds of stars, seven are visible to the naked eye on a clear dark night, leading the cluster to become referred to in modern times as the Seven Sisters. For as long as human beings have been recording their thoughts, The Pleiades star cluster has held a place of special and strangely similar importance. In ancient Egypt, the seven visible stars of the Pleiades cluster represented seven goddesses providing nourishment to worshippers. Scandinavian tradition spoke of the Pleiades as the daughters of the Norse goddess of love and fertility, with people painting seven spots on their houses for protection. In ancient Rome, the school of thought known as Hermeticism spoke of the seven stars of the Pleiades as possessing the secrets of a higher level of consciousness, while in China, the Xiaoling Mausoleum, which contains the tomb complex of the founder of the Ming dynasty, is laid out in the arrangement of the seven stars of the Pleiades and is said to contain great cosmic secrets. Cherokee traditions in North America even spoke of their people having actually originated in the Pleiades cluster, coming to Earth as star seeds with a mission to bring light and knowledge. What is most curious about these traditions and others like them is the repeated use of seven stars of Pleiades as their foundation. In actuality, there are not seven stars visible to the naked eye, but six. So, how? Modern scientists wonder Did the ancients keep speaking of seven? Did ancient civilizations have some sort of special information regarding the Pleiades? And why did they keep ascribing similar characteristics to the cluster knowledge and consciousness, nourishment and protection? Some in more modern times have an answer. According to ufologists, the Pleiades star cluster is not just another point in the sky, but in fact, the home to a race of alien beings known as the Pleiadians. Vitally, these Pleiadians are said to be a benevolent race, closely related to but more emotionally and spiritually developed than humans, interested in helping humanity on its own evolutionary journey. If this is true, then perhaps it is why the ancients continually spoke of the Pleiades as a place of knowledge and protection. Notably, The Pleiadians are said to have a much different appearance than the gray, big-headed aliens of popular culture. Rather, the Pleiadians are often referred to as Nordic aliens due to their purported Scandinavian appearance—blonde hair, milky-white skin, blue eyes. Could these be the aliens seen by Peter Curry and Mrs. Rustenberg? Could they be the ones disabling our nukes and mitigating our disasters? Could these Pleiadians be part of an intergalactic command, looking out for us? And if so, how might they be trying to help us now? In May of 1988, Barbara Marciniak set out on a journey which would change her life forever. For three weeks, she traveled with a new age group through the ancient temple sites of Egypt and Greece, from the Great Pyramid to the temple at Delphi and beyond. On the final day of the trip, Having exchanged hugs and emotional goodbyes with her compatriots on the tour, Marciniak suddenly felt an insatiable urge to meditate. She rushed back to her hotel room, where she sat with eyes closed and back erect, her mind returning to the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid. Suddenly, involuntarily, Marciniak began to speak out loud in a whispered voice, except, shockingly, the voice was not her own. Whose voice is this? Marciniak wondered inside her mind. To her surprise, she immediately received a response out of her own lips. We are the Pleiadians, the voice said. A collective of multi-dimensional spirit beings from the Pleiades star system. Marciniak was concerned. Who in their right mind was going to believe I was in contact with and speaking for ETs? She wondered. After half an hour, the voice stopped. Yet it did not leave her. It returned again, then again, and again, day after day, until, suspecting herself to be some sort of messenger, Marciniac began to record herself whenever she was compelled to speak in this Pleiadian voice. Today, Marciniac is the author of seven books written from these recordings, which have been translated into twenty languages and sold nearly a million copies worldwide. She travels the world, spreading the messages she purports to have received from the Pleiadians. The question is then, what messages? What have they told her? To start, Marciniak says she was told of an ancient alien species who seeded their DNA throughout the universe, founding numerous offshoot species throughout the galaxy, including in the Pleiades star cluster and on planet Earth. In the words of the Pleiadians, spoken through Marciniak, Our ancestors were some of the original planners of Earth, orchestrators who seeded worlds and civilizations with creativity and love. Our ancestors are also your ancestors, and we like to call you our ancient family, as indeed you are. Our ancestors gave their DNA to the original planners, and this DNA became part of the DNA of the human species. Remember the traditions of the Cherokee who spoke of themselves as star seeds of an alien race from the Pleiades cluster? Perhaps they were on to something. In fact, the idea that alien DNA is a part of human DNA is not myth or conjecture, but part of an ongoing discussion at the highest levels of modern science. Look to Dr. Francis Crick, the English scientist who won the 1962 Nobel Prize for his work deciphering the helical structure of DNA, laying the groundwork for understanding DNA structure and functions. In his work, Crick noted that the small pieces of DNA that coded for proteins seemed to float in a sea of elements with no apparent purpose. Genetic gibberish Crick suggested that these other elements This genetic gibberish was little better than junk. What was this junk? Crick had an answer, a theory known as Directed Panspermia. Simply, Directed Panspermia means that life was deliberately spread across the galaxy, including to Earth, by an advanced ancient alien civilization, leaving bits of our alien beginning in human DNA. Yes the man who won the Nobel Prize for his work deciphering DNA, was saying that within our DNA was the DNA of aliens. Crick's work was continued in the seminal Human Genome Project, which brought together scientists, mathematicians, and computer programmers from all over the world between 1990 and 2003 in an effort to map the entire DNA sequence of the human genome. Crucially. The project found that 97% of human DNA, Crick's junk, had no apparent function. This did not make sense. If the junk DNA had no function, that is, no purpose, then it could not be explained by evolution. It would not fit in with the process of the survival of the fittest. So, why was it there? And how did it get there? One Human Genome Project researcher had an answer. We have to come to grips with the unbelievable notion that every life on Earth carries genetic code for his extraterrestrial cousin. Our hypothesis is that a higher extraterrestrial life form was engaged in creating new life and planting it on various planets. Earth is just one of them. Return to the idea that an alien race called the Pleiadians is watching over humanity. Would this not make more sense if they were quite literally our extraterrestrial cousins, related offspring of an ancient alien race that seeded the universe with its DNA? If they are our cousins, no wonder they want to help us. According to Barbara Marciniak, this help goes beyond just nuclear weapons and disasters. Rather, the Pleiadians are here to assist humanity with the process of spiritual transformation. Like an older, more evolutionarily advanced sibling, they have come to help humans in their transition to the next stage of evolution. In the words of the Pleiadians, spoken through Marciniac, a transition is about to occur, a dimensional shift that will lessen the density of the third dimension, so that you will move into higher dimensions in which the body does not have such a solid state. But how can this transition take place? The Pleiadians instruct, when people pay more attention to nature and care for the earth rather than obsessing on war and financial portfolios, you will know the transition to greater awareness has truly taken hold. The land must be loved into vitality and nature must be recognized and cherished as an intelligently designed interactive system of information that connects you to layers upon layers of multidimensional realities. As you shift your perceptions, you will be able to rebuild your civilization based on value and respect for all life. Barbara Marciniak and others who channeled the Pleiadians affirm that the Pleiadian race has advanced thousands of years beyond us in technology and spiritual understanding. They inhabit many planets, some of which are Ptah, Era, Simjassi, and Quetzal, and many others. Although they are spread in many planets in the Pleiades cluster, they maintain a balance by having a low number of people on each planet. In order to preserve both their and their planet's health, they live in harmony with each planet and consider themselves one with nature and all other life forms around them. They don't have any religion, although they are very spiritual. They don't have any currency system as well, and they distribute goods freely, with everyone contributing to their society in different ways. According to channelers, the Pleiadians possess records of Earth's entire history and all civilizations that developed here. It's been said that they helped and influenced many of these civilizations, including Atlantis, Lemuria and other unknown ancient civilizations. Is this possible, that our extraterrestrial Pleiadian cousins are not only watching out for our safety, but attempting to help us move into the next stage of evolution? one based on value and respect for all life? Is this why they have been so interested in turning off our nuclear weapons and mitigating our disasters? And could they really have contacted Barbara Marciniak with the words to make this evolution a reality? The answers to these questions remain to be seen. But if the Pleiadians are to be believed, a change is coming, one which, in their words, will not only affect Earth, It will affect your future, our present, and the entire universe. Thank you for watching. If you enjoyed the video, please hit the like button. And if you're new, hit subscribe and the bell next to it for future notifications.